This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. So this will be a uh, uh, this will be a study for quite a while, and I encourage you to read ahead and uh, follow what's uh, going on in the story of Nehemiah. So we're going to begin by reading all of chapter one today. And if you don't have a Bible uh, or a, a phone, a device with a Bible on it, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you under that seat. You can take that out and turn to page two twenty six. And that's where you'll find Nehemiah. If you have, a pay, if you have your own Bible, you kind of just open to the middle at Psalms and take a left. It's a little bit before uh, Psalms, a few books before the book of Psalms. So here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's listen to God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, this is his prayer. So the majority of this first chapter is a prayer. This is what he prayed. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And I now pray before that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen." To make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for um, all that you're going to teach us in the coming weeks and months. And we just dedicate ourselves at the outset. Help us to be hearers of your word. I pray that today you would guard us from distraction. You would help us to focus in on what you want to say to us. We pray that as we study this book that you would show us Uh, Not only this narrative, what you were doing in this time, but you would also show us the glory of Christ and his power. 
I pray that you would encourage those in the room today who are in the midst of trouble, for surely you show us in this passage how to respond to trouble. And I pray that you would uh, strengthen our confidence in you and your goodness and your faithfulness. Strengthen our confidence in your grace through Jesus, we pray. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Nehemiah is really a book um, that centers on a story about rebuilding the city wall. It's a, it's a story about uh, Nehemiah, a leader, and how he uh, is a catalyst to gather God's people to rebuild uh, the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And this book highlights a number of themes that we're going to see as we go through the story of Nehemiah. It, it highlights God's faithfulness, how God is faithful to his people. It highlights the importance of leadership. Uh, Nehemiah is a, a fantastic, gifted leader, uh, one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. Uh, it emphasizes perseverance, how God's people are to press on when there's uh, persecution and resistance to following the Lord. It, it's, a, it's a story about God's people working together. We're going to see every person and every family finds their role, finds their place to build the wall uh, in the city of Jerusalem. It's a story about faith. That God, trusting God to, to intervene and to turn circumstances around, to act powerfully for his people. So it's a story about faith as, as well. But what we're going to see today, that one clear theme that emerges in the first chapter, and we'll really see throughout the book, is the importance of prayer. And what we learn from this first chapter, which is almost entire, the entire first chapter is almost a prayer. We kind of get the context, and then we get a long prayer. And from that, we're going to see how God, uh, how prayer underlines not only the beginning of the book, but it's really a trajectory uh, throughout the book. If I were to sum up a, a response to this first chapter, I, I think I would say this, that when trouble comes, as Nehemiah hears about trouble, when trouble comes, prayer must be our first response and not our last resort. When trouble comes, prayer must be our first response and not our last resort. Listen, we live in a culture that is all about action. We are an action-oriented people. We like to make things happen. That's the American way. That's the Texas way. And we live in probably a city that sees as much progressive development and making things happen as any city in the country. It'd be hard to imagine a city with, with, more, uh, with more action and movement and development. That, that's what we like. We work for companies that value results. Uh, we live in a culture that honors productivity and efficiency. Many of us in the room, we feel best. If I were to say, when do you feel best? I feel best when I have my to-do list and I'm checking and I'm checking and I check the last thing off my to-do list. It's that moment where I've, I've accomplished something that I feel good. So we love to accomplish things. We want metrics that measure our results. We want to be able to quantify our success. We love action steps. We love tangible 
progress. And that's why as a culture we don't value prayer. Because it's hard to measure the effects of prayer. It's hard to quantify the results of prayer. To know is it really successful or not. And we sort of in our culture have this sense that shouldn't I do all that I can first? Shouldn't we do what is, what is ever, whatever is in our power to do before we bring God into the situation? I mean, after all, doesn't, as the saying goes, doesn't God help those who help themselves? God helps those who can help them, who help themselves. You'll find that in the book, Second Heresies 427. That's in the book. God helps those who help themselves. And so really, we don't turn to prayer until we have exhausted all the other resources. When, when there's nowhere else to go. So in America, after a catastrophic, uh, you know, devastating natural disaster when it's way beyond us, and we can't, that's when we'll step in and say in our culture, hey, thoughts and prayers are with you because there's nothing else that we can do. But in normal life, let's just make it happen. And when things get desperate and we can do nothing else, then we pray. But in a biblical worldview where God rules over everything, where God is in control where God is all-powerful, where God is present everywhere at once, where God is all-knowing. In a biblical worldview, then, 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 and when, he, when we experience difficulty, prayer is to be our first response and not our last resort. One of the things we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah, I almost wish I could teach through the whole book of Nehemiah and then come back and do this chapter because we don't want to forget this chapter. I intend to refer to it you know, regularly in the coming weeks. Because what we're going to learn about Nehemiah is that he stands above most figures in the Old Testament. He is one of the most capable leaders in the Bible. He's one of the most gifted visionaries in the whole Bible. He's one of the most uh, able administrators and uh, efficient, skilled administrators to manage a project that we find in the entire Bible. So it's going to be easy in future chapters to get lost in the activity of Nehemiah, the action, the charge the hill leadership capacity of Nehemiah. But we must remember that he is first and foremost a man of prayer. He's a man of action. He's a doer, but he is first and foremost a man of prayer. And it is prayer that, that catapults, that undergirds, that strengthens everything that happens in the book. This first chapter teaches us that prayer is not a substitute for action. Prayer is action. Prayer is not a substitute for leadership. Prayer is leadership. Prayer is not a substitute for building. Prayer is building. It's part of the building process. And so prayer must be our first response, not our last resort, especially when trouble comes, and it will. You may be in trouble today, you may not be, but you will be. When I was growing up, we'd go to the uh, go to Baskin Robbins, and, and there was always a line there, and so you would take a number, 
and you'd just be holding your number, and sign was usually broken. So supposedly you're supposed to say now serving, but it was either broken or nobody. So you didn't know when you were kind of like, where am I? Uh, until you hear a number called. So you, you just kind of held your number. And you didn't really know. That's all of us. You all hold the number that's the trouble number. And your number's going to be up. You may be at the front of the line. I don't know. You may be at the back of the line, but it's coming tomorrow, a week from now, a year from now, five years from now. But trouble is coming. And when it does, we want to see God as the first place we go. So let's look at two things here. I'm going to talk about uh, the, the, the trouble, when trouble comes, and then I want to talk about the first response. Uh, so we'll look at the bad report, the trouble, and then we'll look at Nehemiah's response. So here's what happens. Verse 2, well, before that, verse 1, it happened in the month of Kislev, the 20th year, as I was in, the, uh, as I was in Susa Citadel, that Hanani... One of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, okay? So Anani is his brother. could be a physical brother. could be like bro. You know, it could be like uh, just a way of referring to, you know, another uh, person of Israel. He came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there... In the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So here's the background. Sometimes I preach a whole background and overview of a book. I'm not going to do that. I'll just drop into context as we go through the whole book. And here would be an important time to do that. So here's the background of what's going on here. In 487 uh, BC, I'm sorry, in 587 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invades Jerusalem. Uh, he destroys the temple, destroys the walls, really destroys the city, and carts off uh, a majority of the people from Judah. This is the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, carts off the people of Jerusalem to Babylon, and they live in exile. That's what he's referring to here, exile. So they're, they're taken away to live in a foreign land under a foreign, uh, under a foreign government, under a foreign leadership. Uh, what happens after that is another 50 years or so later, another king is raised up named Cyrus, and he says, hey, I'm going to send the people back to rebuild their temple. I mean, he's a good polytheist, a good uh, pluralist, because they're, you know, maybe their God is real, and maybe their God would have favor on me if I go ahead and uh, allow them to rebuild the temple. So they go back, uh, get started on rebuilding the temple. It goes very slow. That's where you get Haggai and Zephaniah. Those are prophets that are saying, hey, get the, get the work going. Let's build the temple. And... Um, so they, uh, so, so they get back and they, uh, they finally get the temple built. The, the, the reason that they have been in exile is because they have disobeyed God's word. And he has sent prophets to correct them, but they have not responded. So in his mercy, he judges them so they will see their need for him and come back to him. That's why they were in exile. Then he lets them go back to build the temple. Uh, after that, sometime after that, maybe another 50 years or so, he sends a guy named Ezra. And uh, after the temple is rebuilt, Ezra is the book before this. It's the book before Nehemiah. It's kind of one book together. And Ezra begins to lead a revival of God's word. So he teaches God's word to the people. And they really restore biblical worship. The festivals that we see in the law are uh, enacted. And the people begin to really have a renewal of biblical worship in the temple. And there's some work to begin to repair the walls around Jerusalem at that time. But what happens in chapter 4 of Ezra is that 
a king named Artaxerxes says, stop building the walls. The people around Jerusalem begin to complain because it's one thing to have a temple where you worship the Lord. It's another thing to have a fortified city uh, where you can protect yourself. And uh, it's a way of growing in power when you have a defense uh, to protect yourself. And so the nations or the peoples around them say, hey, they're real building the wall. Complain to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, stop building the wall. Artaxerxes is the same king that Nehemiah works for as cupbearer to the king. So when they get the report that the walls are torn down, that the gates are burned, when they get that report, it's likely not what Nebuchadnezzar did in 587 because this is about 445. So it's not what happened 140 years ago that probably upsets them. It's that the rebuilding project was stopped, that it was ended. And when he gets this news, he is devastated. He, he says that it's so concerning because they are in great trouble. Okay, that's the way it describes it, verse 3, great trouble and shame. Why? Well, the great trouble is they are now vulnerable. God promised to restore them when they repented, and he's brought them back to the land. They have a temple, they have worship, but they're not a protected city. And, and so there is a vulnerability that God's people experience to those who might choose to invade, those peoples around them. And secondly, they are in shame. Why? Well, because though the temple is rebuilt, there is this constant reminder that God's promise to restore them to their city is not fulfilled. I mean, the, the, really, in a very real, real way, the crumbled walls and the burned gates around the city are a reminder of their sin. It's their shame. It's a mark of their shame. It's a constant reminder that generations before us were unfaithful to God. We worshiped idols. We served other gods. We did not obey his word. And he allowed us to be exiled and our city destroyed. And so it's this constant reminder that they have been unfaithful to God historically. And now, even though he's brought them back, they remain vulnerable to their enemies. So that's what the bad report is. We see what Nehemiah's response is in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah hears this, he is burdened. He cries. You know, he weeps. He stops eating. And we look at that and go, well, you know, why is, is he just like a... Is he just like a really an emo kind of a guy? He seems like a strong response. What, what is happening? Here's what's happening. Nehemiah is intimately connected to the people of God such that their burdens are his burdens. That the state of God's people and the reputation of God's people and the vulnerability of God's people and the health of God's people in the world matter to him. And when they are not in a good place, when they are not sound and secure, when it looks like God is not fulfilling his promise to them, when they are having great trouble and shame, it burdens him and he weeps and he suffers because he cares about the plight of God's people, not just his own little world. And when I read that, I find that very convicting. I mean, think about that. Can you relate to Nehemiah at all? Do you know anything? Do we know anything of this kind of identifying with God's church? See, at this time, it was just God's people in Israel. 
uh, and the, 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 uh, you know, the, the great city of Jerusalem where the temple was. After Jesus comes, dies on the cross, is buried, is raised, pours out his spirit, and his followers go and share the message of Christ and his kingdom, then the gospel is among Jew and Gentile alike, amongst all people, or not all people, not every people ha- has been reached yet. But the entire world, the gospel goes to the world. And so for us now, it's not one nation or one people. It's God's church among all peoples. When God's church suffers, does that, does that sting your soul at all? When there are people that are unreached in the world with the gospel, that do not have a testimony of Jesus Christ, does that bother my soul at all? We're going to be talking about uh, reaching unreached peoples at the beginning of next year. We're going to talk about that some uh, on a Sunday. But th- these, are, these are burdens because we are connected to the people of God. And when the people of God spread and the gospel spreads and people are meeting Jesus and the church is healthy, we all feel and rejoice that with that. And yet when people don't have a gospel witness, don't know Christ, when the church is weak, when the church is sold out to the culture, when the church is persecuted by enemies, that burdens our hearts. We are a part of a global kingdom, the kingdom of God. That is where our ultimate citizenship lies. Our our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Our ultimate citizenship is part of the kingdom of God. And our ultimate allegiance is to the king, Jesus Christ. And when his people suffer, our hearts should be effective. Nehemiah, affected. Nehemiah demonstrates a solidarity with God's people, a burden for them, a heart for them. And so he sits, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, his pr- he prays. And his prayer is the very heart of the chapter because when he gets the report, when trouble comes, his, his first response is prayer. That's not his last resort. So I'm going to look at his prayer now. And there's, I hope this helps. I, I want to serve you today. I hope this benefits you. Because many of us are like, man, I don't know how to pray, and I'm not very good at praying, and my mind wanders, and I just don't even know how to start, and don't know how to finish, and sometimes I fall asleep in the middle of it, and I get distracted. And, I mean, I, I, it's like I don't even know how to do it. Well, there's, this, is an out, this is a model prayer. Now, Jesus gave us a model prayer called the Lord's Prayer. But I believe this is a model prayer for us as well. So what I'd like to do is walk through the five sections of this prayer and leave this with you because I think this is a model for each of us to pray, not only in times of trouble, but in, uh, in our daily lives. So here's the first thing. Number one is praise. It starts with praise. Look at how he starts his prayer. He starts with God. Verse 5, and I said... O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Do you see what he does? His first response in prayer is to look up at the God who is the God over all. The God of heaven who created everything by the word of his power. The God of heaven who rules over all. Jesus taught us to pray the same way. Jesus said, when you pray, pray, our Father who is in heaven. Consider the power, the ruling majesty, the sovereignty, the God who is over all. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, when I think about our people, when I think about our situation, it looks bleak. There is no promise that we're going to be able to secure our city. There is no 
no, we have no building permit. It's been shut down. Our people are vulnerable. They are shamed. And so there is great trouble for our people. It looks bleak, but there is a God in heaven and he is our God. There is a God who is great and awesome. And this is the truth, that there's something about getting a glimpse of God that makes our problems seem smaller. When you right-size God in your vision, you will also right-size your troubles and your burdens, and you will find them to be not nearly, not nearly as intimidating as you first thought. And that's why in this prayer, where does he start? He starts talking to God by telling God about God. Do you ever pray like that? Do you start your prayers telling God about God? Or do you start your prayers telling God about you? My tendency is if I got God's ears, I got some things to tell him and they're all about me. But Nehemiah starts with God because that changes your perspective. We used to sing a song when I was younger uh, and maybe people still sing it today, I don't know, but I don't remember the verses to it. But this was the chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what's happening here. This problem is huge, God. But you are huger. Can I say it that way? You are great and awesome. See, prayer is not just about changing your circumstances. Now, prayer is going to change their circumstances. God's going to answer prayer. But prayer is not just about changing your circumstances. It's primarily to reveal to you the God who is greater than your circumstances, who is over your circumstances, who is with you in the midst of your circumstances, who is working in you in your circumstances so that he can work through you in your circumstances. He wants you to see him as great and awesome and rest your confidence in him. Some of us feel overwhelmed today. We have overwhelming problems, challenges, circumstances that have no clear pathway, no answer in view. Numbers of you, you're coming into this season of the year, the holiday season, the end of the year, and you're burdened by all kinds of things, financial things, health-related things, relational problems, limitations, closed doors. You look around and say, if I were to describe my life right now, it's closed door wherever I look. Employment challenges, challenges with your children, challenges with your parents, challenges with your neighbors, challenges in work, depression and loneliness, really, really difficult matters. And they are overwhelming and sometimes, not always, not always, but sometimes, I know in my life, I feel overwhelmed because the circumstances look so much bigger to me than God. I could pass a theology test. If you ask me, true or false, God rules over all, I'd say true. True or false, God can rescue me from the situation, true. But if I really look at what I think about day in, day out, I think this circumstance is massive. And what I need is I need a vision of God as he really is. I need way, the way Nehemiah is praying. 
He's saying, oh God in heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. He's faithful. He he points to how great God is, the great and awesome God. You know, have you ever looked through binoculars before? And uh, you know when you look through binoculars and you see something at a distance, all of a sudden when you look through there, it looks really big and really near. But have you ever done this, like playing around, something's not that interesting, and you flip the binoculars, maybe like you're at a ballet or something, you say, I don't know. So you just flip it around and decide, that, that was unkind to all ballerinas. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think I've been to a ballet, so I don't think I've done, this is not a literal illustration, it's just what if. And for all of you that are in ballet, that is, I'm sorry, let me just pick some. let me pick some. Ever been to a basketball game and it's really boring, Okay. Uh, and so you flip it around and you look through the other side, other way. Have you ever done that? First of all, your eyes have to go out pretty far. But if you squeeze it in, if you squeeze it in, here's what you see. Then the court looks super far away. And, and the players look like, they don't look near, they look like ants just crawling around. Everything looks super far and super small. And somehow that's how we look at God. We look backwards. We look at the binoculars backwards. I mean, God looks really small. I believe in him, but he looks really remote. We flip around the binoculars. We look at our circumstances and they're massive and they're near and they're huge. And what prayer is designed to do is to have you look through the binoculars the right way, to look at God through the binoculars and see how great God is. That's why the Psalms actually say, come and magnify the Lord with me. It doesn't mean that you're going to make God bigger. You can't make God bigger. It means you're going to start seeing God more nearly as he is. That's why the psalm said, come and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Oh, great God. He's got his binoculars on the right way. At first he hears the report and all of a sudden he sees Jerusalem in the binoculars and it looks like a massive problem. Now he's looking to God and he's saying, oh God, the God of heaven, great and awesome. He is magnifying God in his mind. This isn't just like a step. Like, okay, politely praise God and say some nice things about God. Then get down to business and get your request. It's not that. This is it. If we never went past this to our request, we'd be okay. Because we'd start seeing God as he is. He says he's a God who keeps covenant. What does that mean? God made a commitment to his people. And it appears that the commitment is unfulfilled at this point. We'll see that in a moment. But God made a promise, so I'm going to trust God that you're not only great, but you're true. You're faithful. You made a commitment to us. I believe you're going to keep that. I believe you're gracious and loving and merciful and honest and righteous. I know it's just the word covenant, but there's a lot behind that that he's praying. He's reminding himself of how great God is. He begins by talking to God about God. Verse 6, so he says, so hear me. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So, Lord, you're, you're great and awesome and you're faithful. So please listen to what I'm saying. See me, God. Open your eyes. See, here I am. Number two is confession. So he starts with praise, then confession. He prays night and day, verse 6. I'm praying night and day, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept your commandments. Pretty strong confession here. We haven't, com- uh, we haven't kept your commandments, statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. The commandments, the statutes, the rules, all of them, Lord. 
your design, your good design for us. You delivered us out of Egypt and gave us a plan to walk in relationship and communion with you, a good plan about how we should live our lives. We trashed all that. We said, thanks for bringing us out. Thanks for rescuing us. Thanks for being our redeemer. We'd like to go serve some other gods. We're guilty. Now, here's what's powerful about this. And what is foreign to some of us is that when they look at the mess, he begins to identify, where can I identify with the mess myself? So he doesn't say, hey, the problem is all those nations out there that are barking against us. If I'm praying this prayer, I'm probably saying, Lord, would you just wipe out the other peoples around us that are threatening us so we can build our wall? But he didn't pray. The problem's not the other people. The problem's not Artaxerxes. He will address Artaxerxes, but the problem is not this guy is stopping us from building our wall. He's saying, hey, Lord, the reason the wall is crumbled is because we ignored you. We defied you, and you judged us. It's our fault that it's there. He's confessing, confessing. We're the problem here, Lord. Years ago, last century, 20th century, the Times of London, the newspaper, the Times of London, invited several authors to write a piece on this question. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? They asked a number of people to write, you know, I don't know if it's an article or an essay or whatever it is, write what is wrong with the world. So Christian author G.K. Chesterton, his contribution was a letter. What is wrong with the world? Here is his letter that he wrote, his essay on the subject. Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) What is wrong with the world? I am. He took responsibility. He looked for his own responsibility and dealt with it. Started with the greatness of God. We're not even to asking for things. We're saying, God, you are great and I am, well, I'm sinful. Now, I want to say something here because I think this is important. Everything that happens that's trouble in your life is not directly linked to your sin. Uh, It could be someone else's sin. You could be in a troubled situation. Maybe nobody's sin. It may just be circumstances that are very difficult. So what I'm not saying is if you're here today feeling overwhelmed, it's the, the main issue is your sin that caused that circumstance. That's not necessarily true. It's true in this situation in Nehemiah, but it's not always true. However, I would say this. Even if my problem that feels overwhelming is because someone sinned against me, I still have to guard my attitude. Because even if I'm not the cause, even if I righteously shouldn't take all the blame for the situation, I still can get angry, bitter. I can still sin, even if I didn't cause it, by judging other people, being self-righteous towards them. So I think when I say confession, I'd like to broaden it out. This text is about confessing sin. But I'd like to broaden it out because maybe you're in a circumstance today we can't tie it. You've got a health circumstance. You can't tie that to your sin where you say, hey, this is why uh, I have this disease because, I, because of these sins I committed. That's not, there's not a connection there. Oftentimes there's a mystery about why you have it. So I think we can confess other things as well. We can confess our weakness, confess our limitations, confess our ignorance. We don't know what to do. Confess our our own, like I said, weakness. I'm not strong enough to change this. Confess our inability. So we see how great God is, and then we confess our sin that that he's convicting us of, or our weakness, our need. Lord, I need you. I am weak. I am limited. It's, it's undermining that idolatry of my own self-sufficiency and my own accomplishments and my own ability to pro- solve the problem and fix it. It's saying, God, I can't. That's a confession of humility. 
Or, God, I've sinned. Please forgive us. Forgive me for what I have done. The cause of the shame in Jerusalem in this situation is their sin. And Nehemiah owns that. So we own our own sin. That's in the Lord's Prayer too, isn't it? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So there's praise, there's confession, and then there is promise. He goes to the promises of God. Look at verse, uh, well, look at verse 8. This was part of the confession, but he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Number nine, verse 9, But if you return to me, so we're scattered because of our sins, but if you return to me, God said, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, that is, even though you've been scattered everywhere, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. This is powerful. He starts with the greatness of God. He takes his own sin responsibly and then he starts calling God to his word. He not only talks to God about God, he talks to God about his word. And he says, God, you've promised. You said you are going to bring us into a city that we can dwell. We can't even defend ourselves. Our walls aren't built. This wasn't decor. This was defense. We're vulnerable. We're shamed before the nations around us. This isn't the glory of God. It looks in shambles out there. It is in shambles. And we don't have permission, so we're still under another authority. We can't even build our own walls. We feel weak. We feel shamed. We feel vulnerable, God. But you promised we'd be in a city where you would dwell. We are your servants. You redeemed us. This is referring back to the Exodus. When you see redemption language in the Old Testament, uh, by, your great, by your strong hand, he brought us out with a mighty hand. When you see that language of strong hand and redemption, it's usually referring to the Exodus. God, we were slaves, and you brought us through miraculously and freed us. Now, you're going to be faithful. I know it. He's holding God to his word. He's claiming the promises of God. There's praise. There's confession. There are the promises of God. Now, in the New Covenant, we, would, we have different promises. We have better promises, the Bible says, than even this. Like, for instance, Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That would be a promise for the church to pray. God, you are going to build your church. It looks like we are weak. It looks like we are marginalized. It looks like we are persecuted. It looks like we are compromised, whatever the case may be. But, Lord, we believe that you are going to build us. That's a, Jesus died and rose and poured out his spirit so that you would build us. That's a promise to hang on to. Or maybe it's very personal in your situation. The Bible, Jesus promised the Bible, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, I feel abandoned. God, you made a promise to me, but I don't sense you. I don't, doesn't look like you're anywhere to be found. Matter of fact, I want to pray how long, O oh Lord, until you show up, because it feels like you're late, you're tardy. I don't know what's going on. But I know this, you said you would never leave or forsake me. And so I'm trusting that promise that you're with me. Jesus said, it's better that I go away because if I go away, I will send the helper. He will lead you into truth. He was also called the comforter. So Lord, I'm believing that you're going to lead me, that the helper, the spirit of God's in me, that you're going to direct me, that you're going to strengthen me, that you're going to comfort me. It's actually better that you're not standing physically next to me because you're living in me by the spirit. 
I don't feel that, Lord, but that's what the word says. So I'm claiming and believing that passage is the spirit of God is with me to guide me, to lead me into all truth, to strengthen me, to comfort me. Whatever, whatever it might be, whatever the promise might be, it's good to trust God's promises and then to pray God's promises. And this is why, this is why the word and prayer go together. The more we know God, the more we know his promises through the scripture, the more robust our prayer life will be because we will have something substantive to lean on. We're not just leaning on our own creativity. We're leaning on the truth of God's word. Next is request. So he starts with God, prays, and then, uh, I'm sorry, these don't all rhyme. They don't all start with P. Uh, and here's what happened. In the first service, I apologized. I said, I'm sorry. I mean, I grew up in a tradition where there was three points and they all started with R or P or whatever, or they rhymed. Uh, so I'm not good at preaching that way. So all of my part points are hard to remember. Let's see, what was it? It was praise. I mean, I can't even remember it in the second time I preached the sermon. But it was, it's praise and then it's confession. Uh, right, that was the next thing that we, uh, that we uh, talked about. Then the promise, and now we're going to go on to the request. So I told, I said, if you've got a better solution, give it to me. At the end of the service, two people gave me outlines. So I'm going to share those with you in a minute. And uh, so from now on, I thought this is great. I'm going to start crowdsourcing my sermons. I just thought, man, everybody's getting off this week. I'm preaching next week. I could have a sermon next week. So I'm just going to, in a minute here, open chapter two, get the main point and the three points and a couple of illustrations from you guys, and I'm taking the week off. So uh, I never thought about crowdsourcing the sermon. Phenomenal. So I'm about to tell you what two people gave me in a minute. So request is next. Request. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I want you to notice the words that that he uses here. Look at the word servant three times. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant. What's he saying? God, I serve you. You are the king, I am the servant. How does he refer to King Artaxerxes? This man. Give me mercy in the sight of this man, but I'm your servant. You are my king. Do you see he's reminding himself he's going to ultimately risk his life and go before the king and intercede for his people. But he doesn't see Artaxerxes as the guy who's going to control him, the guy who has all power over him. He sees him as this guy. That's who it is. God, you are mighty, this guy. I love, love this verse, Proverbs 21.1. Write this down if you don't know this verse. I love this verse. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's a picture of irrigation. And it says like the water flows in irrigation, but the farmer can turn it wherever he wants. We don't think in those terms, we think of a sprinkler system. So you put in a sprinkler system, you take your PVC pipe, you put one piece of pipe out there, and then you connect. Then do I want the water to go that way? Do I want it to go that way? You know how difficult it is? You just get the little L or the elbow, or I don't know what it's called. The little thing goes like that. And you put it on the end, and I put the pipe that way if I want it to go that way. It's pretty simple. Oh, wait a minute, I want to do that. We want the pipe to go that way. I can turn the water however I want very simply. And he's saying that's how God works with the most powerful people on the earth. The most powerful people on the earth. He says, I'm going to turn their heart that way. I think we'll go that way. I love that. I have prayed that verse so many times when a decision maker apparently has authority over my life. When someone can turn the course of my life, my family's life, our church's life, um, our nation's life, the the church international, whatever it is, 
to pray, Lord, the king's heart is a stream of water in your hand. You turn it wherever you will. God, we are your servant, so give me mercy inside of this guy. <laughs> he, just, he, honor, he respects him, but he doesn't glorify him. He glorifies God because that is the one who determines Nehemiah's future and the people of God's future. And that's what he's reminding himself. He started with God. He ends with God. Verse 11, oh, Lord, he's praying it over and over and over. Grant me success. Turn the heart of the decision maker. Okay? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. We'll talk about what that means next week. It means he had to taste all the wine and taste the food before the king did. So in case it was poisoned, he would die and not the king. There was a short line of people applying for that job, I assure you. Here's the last point. So after request, and you're not going to like this because I don't like this. Here's the last one. Wait. Wait. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, not to be confused with Nisan, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Um, Scholars say this was four months later. So when he says, give me success today, I was praying and fasting and weeping uh, day and night. That wasn't 24 hours. That was four months where he's weeping, fasting, mourning, and every day he's praying, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Give me success today. Every day he's praying for that. And he's waiting Sometimes prayer is quick. Sometimes we wait. We wait for God to open a door, and that's what he does. God opens a door in the next chapter. So here's, the, here's, here's what happens. Here's the form and shape of this prayer that we can pray. We start with praise, confess, promise, request, wait. Or as two people in the first service, one person told me, praise, profess, promise, plea, patience. Not bad. Someone else said, rejoice, repent, remember, request, relax. That's a preacher. That, I, I, that is a preacher, that person right there. That's, that's pretty powerful right there. Uh, instead of wait, I like that better. I said, wait. This person said, relax. That's trusting the Lord. Lord, open a door. Deal with this guy. Have mercy on me. Show Fulfill your promises to your people. You're great. I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I'm ignorant. Yes, but you're great. Now I'm going to rest in you. I love that. Love what that person said. In his commentary on Nehemiah, Derek Thomas says, everything Nehemiah achieved for the kingdom of God is based on this initial portrait of his commitment to daily prayer. Everything else in the book, I'm going to remind us, don't forget this day, don't forget this chapter, because everything else in the book springs from desperate prayer in troubled times, where Nehemiah said, prayer is my first response and not my last resort. It's powerful. This is, Nehemiah is not at the end of your Old Testament, if you've thumbed through it, but it is historically. This is the, this historical event's the end of what we call the Old Testament. This happens about 444, 445, what's going on here, uh, B.C. And then, uh, ultimately, there's like a 400-year window before uh, the closing of the Old Testament when Jesus comes. And this is the final thing that happens. So he's not just securing the city. He's not just making sure that the people of God can live freely. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. His story, he's just this one guy building a wall, but his story, his prayer 
is part of the greater story of God redeeming a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and God restoring all things. I love that, that Nehemiah, God is a restorer, and he uses Nehemiah to restore, but it is his prayer that is the power of restoration. God restores through people, yes, but God restores through prayer. It is through prayer that God is redeeming people, that God is protecting his city, that God is uh, fulfilling his promises, that God is building his church, that God is renewing all things. It is through prayer. And so it is with us. Our lives, like Nehemiah, are connected to a bigger story. It is the story of the gospel going forth, of God making people his own children, adopting them into the family as they hear the gospel of his death and resurrection and as they believe, building them together in churches and through churches being a city set on a hill, a light that represents Jesus with mercy, with compassion, with love, and with good news for all broken people. And part of that restoring and a key part and a foundational part and a constant part of that work of restoration that God is doing in our world is prayer. And my own and your own circumstances and our own challenges, God wants to act there to bring the power of his restoration to sustain us and empower us and to demonstrate his gospel to those around us. Because when trouble comes, prayer is to be our first response and not our last resort. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.